This is MIT Technology Review. There's lots of reasons for automation to be hard on a farm. Computers tend to perform best when kept cool, dry, and clean. And while computer vision can be used in countless ways in agriculture, such as to precisely target weeds and save farmers money, as well as the environment, from excess spraying, think of the challenges presented by such basic things as the sun's glare, or mud. And you can't talk about AI without also talking about connectivity, something that's often in short supply where crops are grown. Entire swaths of U.S. farmland don't even have cell phone service on the main roads, let alone in the fields. And yet, some of the first widely deployed self-driving vehicles were on farms, and today's harvesting combines are among the most advanced vehicles on Earth. AgTech is one of my favorite things to cover. It's a story about trust, about not giving up, and about finding creative ways to approach some really hard problems. It's also full of surprises I didn't see coming, like tracking and measuring the health of cow pastures from space, as in, outer space. Right now, the pixel size that the satellites are measuring is about three meters square. And that's the kind of detail that we never could get by just walking around. Greg Brickner is a veterinarian who works for Organic Valley, a nationwide dairy co-op where he's a grazing expert. And the reason this is important, especially for Organic Valley, is that the USDA requires for organic certification that dairy cows get at least 30% of their daily feed intake from pasture. And he's been using satellites to measure the health and nutrition of cow pasture. It's a pilot program with Planet Labs. And so we can get a level of detail across the entire paddock that's allowing farmers to see areas that may need some fertility, may need some reseeding or additional seed added. If they're a farm that irrigates, they may see, you know, a broken nozzle or, you know, something broken on their irrigation equipment that, that shows up as well. This pilot is expanding to more than 100 farms next year and adding more capabilities. We're going to be able to start talking about the quality of the plants that are growing in these pastures, and specifically sugar levels and also protein levels. I'm Jennifer Strong, and this is part one of a two-part series exploring the intersection of agriculture, automation, and satellites. Hmm. Let's go. In Machines We Trust. I'm listening. A podcast about the automation of everything. You have reached your destination. We're in California's Central Valley taking a walk in an orchard. It's a large, family-owned farm with about 7,000 acres of almonds, walnuts, and pistachios. This year has been pretty tough. We had really good bloom and set, and then we had a horrible frost, uh, and that basically wiped out production for this whole area. Jeff Klein is the irrigation manager at Bullseye Farms. And so now we're trying to figure out, you know, how to manage orchards with very little crop on them and do it in a way that, you know, we're not wasting money anymore. The frost isn't the only thing the farm has had to contend with. 
It's on the back of a drought, which has been felt by farms across the region. You know, we've been in a drought for a few years now. Typical rainfall here is about 21 inches or so. Last three-year average is you know, 10. We had one year last year that we only had five inches, so we were a full quarter of what we would typically have. And so that's put huge amounts of stress on groundwater tables. We're seeing wells drop out of the water. We're having massive issues kind of everywhere. He says the big fear is that this area could turn into Southern California, where overtaxed groundwater has led to sinkholes and other subsidence issues. Fortunately for now, he says they don't have limited water, but it pays to be smart about it, both because water is an expensive and precious commodity and because overwatering an orchard also hurts it. To get a general idea of what an orchard was like, you have to be in it all the time. You know, find the weak areas, figure out what's going on. Most problems occur and you don't see symptoms until they get really bad or until they get bad enough to be visual. And by that point, you're way behind the game. Our irrigators who are out here all the time know where the problem spots are. My problem is we pay them many, many, many hours to be out here in these fields. I don't have the time to go walk every single row every single week. I think we have like 60 fields, so I'd have to be walking through them on a daily basis to figure out, hey, there's an issue here, there's an issue there. As the scale got bigger, we have to turn to tools to help. Another problem he faces is figuring out which tech platforms and tools to trust and adopt. It's not uncommon these days for farms to need a head of technology as they try to integrate different apps, sensors, and other data. We trial as many things as we can, and we try to figure out what works and what doesn't. And yeah, but the 20 20 or 50 tabs open is a problem. And everyone's got an idea, and a lot of companies are not willing to work with each other. So on my end, that's been a a bit of a problem. Well, you're holding an iPad, which is not something I would have seen on a farm when I grew up in Tennessee. Yes, and as with the technology, we have to have you know, ways to do it, ways to view it. Um, most of my guys, I print out papers for them, or actually they log in on their phones too if they're savvy enough. But I have an iPad, and I have all of my tools and remote sensing things on here. All of our automation stepped to this because I can't live in the office. So I have an iPad, and I carry it around all the time. And if I'm in the grocery store, I have it. And if I'm at home, I have it, or anywhere I have it, because I can now do everything from it. So what are we looking at there? This is just an overview of the field itself. The colors represent levels of stress or potential levels of stress, and that they use cameras to detect changes in temperature or overall temperatures. Blue is good, red is bad. And using this, I can kind of start to isolate areas that are not as well irrigated. Areas that are drier due to irrigation issues, differences in soil, because as heavier soils, the trees are a little less vigorous, so they tend to be smaller. This tool is from an agricultural data analytics company called Series Imaging. The orchard has been using it for the last six years. And when you look through a whole field, if it's perfectly uniform across the field, that's great. But that's not how fields are. They're going to have big spots and small spots and happy spots and sad spots. So they created irrigation maps from their data, and it helped them figure out which parts of the field needed more or less water than other parts. And so... With the water demand maps and the automation we've been doing, um, we are able to kind of, or will be able to reduce the water applied to areas that don't need as much. But if we can save 5% over 7,000 acres, with every month I could buy a new house for their PG&E bill, a nice house, a very nice big house. 
energy costs, utility prices, very expensive, not going down. So every little bit that we don't irrigate, if the trees don't need it, that's money saved, it's water saved, it's, I mean, it's everything. So there's a big movement going on for farmers and other agriculture stakeholders of how can farming basically do more with less, be more sustainable, use less resources, and create more food at the end of the day. And really, the solution is technology. John Bourne is the VP of Business Development at Ceres, a company that takes aerial imagery and combines it with other data. So we have a proprietary sensor that we mount to an airplane. And that gets very high-resolution imagery that can be used for really specific use cases, like checking if a farmer is over or underwatering. And then we combine that data with satellite imagery. And all of this gets run through proprietary algorithms to help farmers be more efficient with water, build up their soils, and save money on labor. And we have a proprietary camera that we've built with different sensors looking at different bands, one of which is thermal, and basically capturing the light reflectance of uh, the crop. So that's the first thing we do. We capture this imagery. And then it goes through an image processing pipeline where we're using um, ML to basically a couple steps, but one example is to segment out the ground cover or the um, soil and just measure the uh, crop or the canopy or the plant itself. They're also using this process to identify individual plants. So we're basically making a representation an account of every single individual vine or tree or plant in the operation. And then we run it through an additional process where we're then um, basically making different indexes that look at different characteristics. So we have a water stress index, we have a chlorophyll index that's more looking at nutrient. And then we deliver that in an app uh, so a farmer or a lender or other players can uh, engage with that data, look at trends over time, and make management decisions. He says ag lenders and insurance companies are using this data, too, to help mitigate risk and protect yields. But it's only the tip of the iceberg, and after the break, we'll take you to John Deere's test farm in Iowa, where they're hosting Satellite Day. You can find links to our reporting in the show notes, and you can support our journalism by going to techreview.com slash subscribe. We'll be back right after this. Hi, this is Brian Bryson, Director of Event Content and Experiences here at MIT Technology Review. I'm popping into this podcast to invite you to our upcoming AI conference, MTech Digital. MTech Digital is MIT Technology Review's executive briefing on artificial intelligence, its implementation, and impact on business and society. If you're tasked with integrating AI into customer offerings or using AI to streamline operations, this is your once-a-year opportunity to meet and network with the peers and leaders on the cutting edge of AI. Learn more about this exclusive event at mtechdigital.com. Precision agriculture applies water and chemicals precisely where they're needed. And one of the key leaders in this space is John Deere, a company that's been around since 1837 and making their famous green and yellow tractors for more than 100 years. Theories about how precision agriculture could work at scale have been around for decades, but not the technologies to make it possible. So when Deere launched its first precision ag team in the 1990s, 
it only had three people. Those three people convinced the organization that GPS was going to be critical to the future of agriculture, and, and that was a huge investment for John Deere. Deanna Kovar is Deere's vice president of Precision Ag Production Systems. These days, GPS serves as the foundation for everything the company does. And so that moment was as pivotal as when it went from a horse and plow business to a tractor company. It was first about documenting geospatially what farmers were doing, where they were placing seeds, where they were placing nutrients, but just as important, where they were getting yield on the farm and how that differed. Then came the internet. And we took all of that data that was in binders on farmer shelves and we put it in the cloud and we created the John Deere Operations Center. So we've spent much of the last decade focused on digitizing agriculture in a way that puts the information right at the farmer's fingertips in near real time. And connectivity was a critical part of us doing that. We've been connecting all of our production ag equipment since 2011. So we have over a decade's worth of of connected fleet out there. And now the focus is on computer vision and machine learning. So every big ag machine you see from John Deere will have a GPS receiver, the yellow dome on top of the on top of the tractor, sometimes on the implement as well, because it's not just good enough to know where the tractor is. We have to know where the planter or the sprayer is as well. Every machine you see, you won't see the connectivity because we hide it under the seat. That hidden device is streaming information about the machine itself and how well it's working, as well as about the crop, including the exact location of each and every seed. Two years ago, we launched a product called AutoPath, which says, if I know where I planted the seeds, then as a farmer, I shouldn't have to do anything more than just pull in the field when I go to spray to provide nutrients or to kill weeds. I shouldn't have to do anything else. And because John Deere owns all of the production steps, we can now tell the farmer when they pull in the field, here's your path. They don't have to think about it. The path is just there for them because we know where they planted. There's big aspirations for all of this data and for how multiple autonomous machines operating at once can interact. But for all of this to work, there has to be connectivity, something many farming areas lack. These aren't the most densely populated places, which makes adding cell reception and other infrastructure a much less lucrative business. That in and of itself is the problem. Many of our customers, most of our customers, operate in regions that are rural, that have low population densities. Jamie Heinemann is Deere's chief technology officer. And so we have a need to create and craft a connectivity solution that would be ubiquitous, hopefully across the the surface of the planet, that allows all of our machines to be connected at all times. Consider Brazil, where Deere has had customers for more than 60 years. It's a place that produces a significant amount of the global supply of corn, soy, and cotton. There's a massive opportunity to improve the productivity of agriculture in Brazil, but it requires technology to do it, and that technology really is dependent upon real-time connectivity to machines in order to enable much of it. And so we have a great opportunity in this space, and that's really where we think the satellite communication opportunity is really interesting. And on the other side of the wall from where we've been talking, Deere is hosting what staff have been calling Satellite Day. There's a makeshift auditorium that's absolutely packed with people from that industry, They're here in Iowa because Deere wants their help developing a comprehensive satellite communications infrastructure that can connect with the company's devices on the ground. We will be in an environment with multi-mode connectivity needs, both cell, terrestrial cell, and satellite. 
So we have to be able to bridge and combine basically both of those opportunities together. And while it would enable precision farming at scale in places without connectivity, it's what else it could do too. Because theoretically, a system like the one Deere aims to have online by 2024 could also be used to provide dependable, global internet access. When you enable connectivity in a place like Brazil that doesn't have it today, the natural question that follows is, what else can you use it for? So could a company known for farm equipment be your next internet provider? Next episode, we take a ride in a self-driving tractor and see plants that have been genetically modified to communicate their needs by giving off new forms of light that can be seen from outer space. This episode was reported and produced by me, Emma Silicons, and Anthony Green. It was edited by Matt Honan, and our mix engineer is Garrett Lang, with original music by Garrett Lang and Jacob Gorski. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. <laughs>